Uh, his face would have been all over the anti-Christian posters of the day. Uh, he'll throw you in prison for serving God and think he's doing God a favor. So I'm going to read tonight. We're gonna, we, we talked last week a little bit about the Damascus Road. We'll continue that again, uh, do a little bit of, uh, a, of a uh, review, and then also go into uh, what uh, Ananias's job was and try to get that wrapped up this evening. But let's start in verse number 8 of Acts chapter 9. The Bible says, And Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And it was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go to a street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. He hath seen a vision in the uh, he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath the authority of the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went in his way, went his way, entered into the house, putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and rose and was baptized. Father, I pray that you'd help us. Now this evening, as we look at this story, help us to learn and apply uh, relevant truths in our own lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Saul, as we talked about last uh, time, we, uh, a couple weeks ago, he was raised as a Jew, trained as a rabbi. Saul of Tarsus was a very religious man. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, he kind of ran down a list of reasons that he could have been confident in his religion. But we see, and he understood at that time, that these are things that did not justify him in the eyes of God. They still do not justify anybody in the eyes of God. Just to run through them very quickly, I won't re rehash all that we talked about, but we saw that ritual did not save him, uh, circumcised the eighth day. Relationships did not save him out of the stock of Israel. Respectability did not save him of the tribe of Benjamin. Race did not save him, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Religion did not save him as touching the law of Pharisee. Reputation did not save him uh, concerning zeal persecuting the church. Righteousness did not save him, the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. None of those things saved him. None of those things can still save today. What he, what he could not do, what you cannot do, and what I cannot do, Jesus Christ did. And so, religion is what he was wrapped up in. And religion, without redemption, always causes resentment. And this was where Saul was. He heard the truth and he rejected it. He refused to believe on Jesus Christ. He became enraged at those who did. And the sin in his heart made him a ruthless and a cruel man. Because he hated Christ, he hated the gospel, he did all he could to destroy it, all the while thinking he was pleasing God. 
We saw the miracle of Saul's conversion, and we didn't read it tonight, but verse 1, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. By the way, I maintain he was under conviction all during this time. I maintain he's under conviction during the stoning of Stephen when, when, he, had, when he stood by and watched that happen. And, and I believe that uh, God was already working on his heart. Now, what I did mention last week that's very important for us to recognize, that Saul even recognized, he was smart enough to know that Judaism and Christianity could not coexist. One had to be true, one had to be false. He obviously accepted Judaism and rejected Christianity, but he did have that right. Either Christianity was right and Judaism was obsolete, uh, the Judaism they had uh, known anyway, or Judaism was right and Christianity was apostasy. So uh, Paul felt he had to uh, promote one and reject the other. In that, he was correct. He was just picking the wrong one. So in verse 2, we saw that he went to the high priest. He got arrest warrants for people in Damascus where his first uh, target would be. The authority and the clout that he asked for was eagerly given, and there he went on his way to uh, wreak havoc there in Damascus against the believers. And as he at last came near Damascus, what happened next was nothing short of a miracle. Only God could save a man like Saul. And that's exactly what God did. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, the Bible tells us that Saul was going house to house on, on a kind of reverse evangelism, if you will. Uh, knock, knock, are you a Christian? If you were, you got dragged off to prison. You got persecuted. You got sometimes even killed. Uh, and so he was doing this, this type of uh, work against Christianity. And the question we raised last time that I want to just remind you again because it's important for us to remember, you wonder if anybody in the early church was praying for Saul's salvation. Think about, I mean, Ananias, uh, Peter, uh, any of the apostles, really, Philip, the evangelist that we've seen the last couple of were they praying for Saul's conversion? I, 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 would, I would guess if they were like us, probably not many, because there's nobody, Saul's unreachable. He's absolutely, you can't, Saul, there's no way he could get saved. And I wonder how many times uh, we make that distinction or that determination about people today and we just don't pray for them. But at any rate, uh, they felt maybe he was beyond hope. But I'm thrilled to say that God can reach the impossible. God can touch the hardest heart. He can melt a heart of stone. He can touch anyone, anywhere, anytime. Never count God out. He is able to awaken the dead heart to the power of the gospel. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Paul used the words, but God. He said it himself. But when it pleased God who called me by his grace. He was an impossible situation. He was in an impossible condition. He was a, a, a Jesus Christ hater, but God intervened. What a blessing that is. The Bible tells us that suddenly a light shined round about him, or suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. This is always the beginning stage of salvation when God illuminates our path. The noonday sun paled as this light blinded and dazed Saul. I mentioned last week the expression shined round about, uh, parastropto, it means to flash around. We're talking here about a heavenly strobe light that would shock and awe anyone who saw it, and it knocked Saul right down off of his horse. The Lord from heaven 
Verse 4, he fell to the earth, heard a voice saying in him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, this is where we left off, and so we'll pick up here uh, going forward tonight. But it's interesting that Philip was a great evangelist. He wasn't Philip who was sent to Saul. Uh, Peter was a great preacher. We saw that in Pentecost, but it wasn't Peter that was sent to try to reach Saul. The conversion of Saul was handled by the Lord himself. Now, I have to wonder... Uh, it's possible with the age of Paul, but I wonder if, if Saul ever met Jesus while he was on earth. Did he ever stand off to the side of the crowd and listen as Jesus preached? There's no indication in Scripture that he knew Jesus beforehand. Uh, there's no, no mention of it anyway. It seems to have been right here, his first encounter with Jesus, because his view of Jesus ever after this point is not Jesus of Nazareth, but the Lord from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Saul's view of the risen and ascended Christ is what stood out in his mind from this point on. Do you blame him? I mean, being knocked down with this heavenly light and hearing from him directly. From this moment, Paul realized, and I, I'm sorry, he's not Paul yet, but forgive me, We get used to the name so much, Saul, Paul, same one. But Saul realized at this point that Jesus was God seated at God's right hand. This is the moment that sealed Paul's mind also in the indisputable link between Christ and the church that he was persecuting. Pay attention to what it says here. He did not hear, why persecutest thou them? He heard the question, why persecutest thou me? In that moment, Paul learned the Saul learned the bond between the head of the church in heaven and the members of the church on earth. And so much so that for Saul to put his hand on a Christian was the equivalent of putting his hand on Christ. He never forgot that. He, ne- he, he later would teach about the mythical, mystical, he called it body, uh, not mythical, mystical body of Christ uh, in the epistles, especially through Ephesians. One moment. Saul of Tarsus is riding high. The next, he's lying low. God has brought him to a place of humble repentance. Saul's salvation is interesting because when he meets the Lord, he folds faster than Superman on laundry day. He just instantly changes from being one way to another way. Uh, 100% turnaround. No argument, no defense. Jesus showed up, knocked Saul to the ground, said, uh, why persecutest thou me? In answer, Saul simply asked, who art thou? And he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And his response was immediately, Lord, what will thou have me do? It's fascinating that the worst oppressor of the followers of Jesus became an instant believer calling him Lord. Essentially what Saul is saying here is, I believed you were a fraud, now I believe you're the Savior. I believed you were dead, now I believe you're alive. And all of this happened instantaneously. He did not need to negotiate with Jesus. The moment the truth was undeniable, Saul turned. This is important for us to recognize. Remember, Saul was not a God-hater. Saul was a Jesus-rejector. He thought he was pleasing God. He thought he was doing God's work. He thought he was a mighty man of God. 
He was a Jesus rejecter, and now when he realizes that they are the same, uh, he instantly uh, turned around. Because it's important for us to see that uh, when he heard the truth, he responded and he acted accordingly. So many today people are filled with unbelief, and being face-to-face with the truth does nothing for them. But it did for Saul. This is the moment when God and Jesus were no longer separate opposing identities. Suddenly, and in a moment, Saul realized with a, just in a flash of recognition that Jesus was God. And that's why he responded, Lord, Lord. In uh, verse 5, let's read there. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And trembling and astonished, he said, Lord. Now, interesting, you see that difference there. He said, Lord, who are you? He said, I am Jesus. How did he respond? Did he say, okay, Jesus, then no. He responded again, Lord. He recognized Jesus was God. Jesus was who he said he was. They were no longer separate. He was devastated, had to be absolutely crushed, realizing that in persecuting the church, he had persecuted the living Lord himself. Saul was the world's most active killer of Christians. And instantly, he becomes a Christian. The leader for the anti-Jesus extermination force has just accepted Jesus Christ. His reply was devastating to all that he had previously believed when Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Imagine Saul's distress. A lot of things were happening in his mind very fast. Uh, He was realizing these things. He had persecuted the Messiah of Israel, the son of David, the son of God. He had viciously abused the followers of the son of God. And he had to recognize all of a sudden that it was all true. Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God. He was born of a virgin. He was without sin. He was crucified while being completely innocent. And most of all, it was true that he had risen on the third day. Not only did he have to realize all that in a split second, he had to also accept at the same time that everything he had believed in his life was a lie when it came to Christ. So he uh, had rightly concluded, if you remember, you can't have both. Now he changed teams, essentially. He recognized and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard, he said, to, for thee to kick against the pricks. Uh, This referred to a pole with a sharp piece of iron on the end. They called it an ox goad. Uh, To kick against this poking would only make it worse. Uh, We used to have, we used to have for, uh, we we raised hogs for a while, and we had one of those uh, shot, the the button that you push in at the end, and it shots. And it was great fun to uh, hit brothers with that thing sometimes. But uh, this was an ox goad. It was sharp, and it would move them along. Uh, who refused, if, if an oxen refused to obey or move, uh, then, then you could poke it and get it moving. I've often thought it'd be nice to have a, a child goad, wouldn't it? Maybe we ought to invent that and sell them and uh, get ourselves in trouble, probably. But like a headstrong ox, Saul had been a stubborn man. He had turned a deaf ear to the gospel. He had turned a deaf ear to the cries for mercy from all the Christians he persecuted. He had closed his ears and his heart to the truths of the gospel. He was there when Stephen preached. He had heard the truth. 
but he willingly ignored all the facts about who Jesus was and what he did. But Saul did these things, and it was not without a great cost to himself. Every time he consented to the death or the imprisonment of a Christian, God had pricked his heart. I really believe this is what this is referring to. When Stephen died, God pricked Saul's heart. When he dragged uh, fathers away from their families and he heard the cries of a wife and child, uh, God pierced the heart of Saul. Every time that a believer died who refused to deny Christ, uh, God pricked the heart of Saul. And now he says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Saul would have been under conviction, but he just hadn't responded. Uh, He seemed hard as a rock, uh, closed to the gospel. But evidently, God had been doing a hidden work in his heart. He was bringing him to the place to humble himself and confess Christ as his Savior, and that's just what happened. By the way, we've mentioned it often before, but if God encourages you or impresses on your heart to talk to someone, to witness to someone, oh, free, please, we have to obey immediately because we have no idea the work that God's done in that heart. We have no idea the preparation that's been done. Oh, I, I'm so grateful. I think of it often how grateful I am that a man named Carl Hasty did the absolute impossible thing of witnessing to an Amish person. You just don't do it. It's unheard of. No, nobody does that. And yet God impressed on his heart to talk to my dad, and he did so over and over and over until, praise God, my dad got saved. I'm grateful for that. And uh, I, I would think that probably your story includes someone's faithfulness who told you or to, who told your family or who is faithful to do what God told them to do. So here, let's be faithful as well. Saul here was already experiencing the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at this change here again. Verse 6, in answer to the who question, who are you? And we see this utter shock in Paul's life. Now he asks the what question. And he, verse 6, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Paul used the word Lord again. You could say this was his confession of faith. Uh, God had put Jesus on the throne of the universe. Saul just put him on the throne of his heart. What do you want me to do? What should I do next? What will thou have me to do? The old Saul died, crucified with Christ, buried with him forever. The new Saul stood in Christ on resurrection ground. The Lord would be his uh, Savior. Jesus would be his Savior and his Lord uh, from this point on. And so he says, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. These orders here remind us that God reveals his will one step at a time. Sometimes that can be a little frustrating. But he reveals it one step at a time. Go to the city, and you'll find your next step there. If you want to know more of his will in your life, do what he has told you so far. And he will reveal more of his will as you go on. And uh, God does not reveal everything at once. He, re- he requires obedience in this section for us to go to the next level in our life. Let's us be obedient then. All right, coming down to verse 7. Interesting here, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. The Lord was not speaking to them. He was speaking to Saul. Here they were wondering what in the world was going on. 
According to what the Bible says, they heard a voice, they just didn't understand what was going on, what was being said. Whether or not they came to Christ later, we don't know, but we do know this, at this moment, God is speaking to Saul. Reading on, and Saul, uh, this is where we started tonight, arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. This is an interesting a couple of words here I want to look at. Uh, that if we break these down, verse 7 says that his traveling companions stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. The word for seeing there is thereoreo. It means to be a spectator, to look at, to behold. Our English word theater comes from this word, or the same root word. They had their eyes open. They stared but saw nothing. There's a different word for when Saul's eyes were opened, he saw no man. This is a word for saw is blepo, the power of seeing. Also to see with the mind's eye is what this word means. Think of the difference here with Saul and his fellow travelers. They having sight gazed about and saw nothing. Paul being blinded saw everything clearly. Interesting, isn't it? This is a tragedy in the world today. Evidence all around, and yet people won't see. They won't see because they choose not to see. Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No one who lives on planet Earth is without excuse because they have planet Earth to show them that God exists and is real. So there are no excuses there. Now in verse 9, he goes on here. He was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. So his companions led him to Damascus. They found accommodations. They left him there, and there he fasted, (laughs) no doubt thinking and praying. Imagine the incredible internal I guess, turmoil, battle, uh, transformation taking place in his life. His whole world had been turned upside down. You have to remember that Paul, from a young age, had planned and trained and went to the right schools and and, uh, spent all of his energies to get to where he was. He spent years of study and diligence. He no doubt denied himself many pleasures and didn't go on vacations and didn't waste any part of his life to achieve that title he had to be a Jew of the Jews. Now all that was for nothing. This is a crushing feeling. Knowing that everything you've done in life, everything you've believed, is for nothing. How much could be salvaged from the rubble that had been his life? Not much. He says later he counted it all but dung. I remember the mental anguish that was for my dad after we were saved out of the Amish religion. And I remember, well, he, I don't remember this, but he, he's told me several times that he asked, when he got, before he got saved, one of the last things he asked the soul winner, he said, are you telling me that everything I've ever done in my life, all the things I have kept, the, the ordinances and the rules that I've kept, all the things I've kept myself from, not having the modern conveniences of the world. Are you telling me that all that is for nothing? And thank God the soul winner was honest. He said it is all for nothing. That's a soul-crushing thing to realize. When you live a life 
and it's all for nothing. This is where Saul was at here. Turn, if you would, with me to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. And uh, he says later here that he recounted all these things as nothing. In verse uh, 4 of Philippians chapter 3, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Realizing all your work and all your sorrow means nothing, nothing as far as heaven's concerned. Now, as for Paul, or Saul here, he's having to rethink all that he knows in the Bible in the light of Calvary. Now, we do realize that all the scripture and the Bible that Saul knew wasn't a waste. He's going to be able to use that. But he had to rethink it all in, the, in terms of Calvary. And so uh, this is a tremendous turning point in his life. Now, I want to move to, just for a moment, we're not going to get as far as I thought tonight, but look at uh, Ananias. There was a certain disciple, verse 10, named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. Now, uh, you remember Ananias in Acts chapter 5? Different Ananias, that was a bad one. This is a good one. Uh, God has servants everywhere, amen? And here at Damascus was a believer who was ready at the beck and call of the Lord. He says, Behold, here I am. We've never heard from him before this incident. We'll never hear from him again. But what an honor this is going to be for him. We don't know his past. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know if he had a family. But the Lord knew all about him. Name and address. Knew where to reach him. Knew his faith. Knew his fear. And he reached out to Ananias and he instantly said, Behold, I am here, Lord. May we ever be that ready to do the Lord's bidding. Always ready to do what he tells us to do. Now, verse 11, he says, And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. The street which is called Straight ran from the west gate to the east gate of the city. In Bible times, this street would have been a busy marketplace. I like how the Lord noted when he said about Saul, Behold, he prayeth. Hey, listen, there's praying, and then there's praying. All Saul's life, as a boy until he became a man, he had said his prayers. Now, for the first time in his life, he is genuinely praying. As Saul prayed, God spoke to him. Told him about a man who's coming to see him, to restore his sight. Told him the man's name was Ananias. God does not speak in visions. And uh, when he can speak clearly through his written word. Uh, Saul's case was an exception. Understand today, dear friend, that God does not, in the, pro or in the uh, habit of giving visions or dreams in this day and age, because we have the complete word of God. And what happens when we start to uh, feel that we're getting dreams or visions is the dreams will rise in importance and the Word of God will sink in importance as in what leads our life. We just a uh, couple of years ago, I had a young lady that came to our church for a while and 
and, uh, and, and then she started to kind of get caught up in this, uh, some of these things and felt she was being told things of God in dreams. And, and uh, those dreams, several of them, I would point out how they contradicted what the Word of God said. Guess which one won <laughs> in her life? Because if we allow other things to speak to us instead or in place of the Word of God, we'll soon give them greater importance than we do the Word of God. And uh, this is not saying God can't do it. It's just saying God has made clear uh, his uh, mode of communication for us today, and that's through his word. But Ananias was, had no doubt what he was supposed to do. A street called Straight, the house of Judas, so far so good. Then the name came out like a thunderbolt. Inquire for one called Saul of Tarsus. Ananias, I'd like you to go and put your head into the lion's mouth. That's what he heard. Is he supposed to carry the precious gospel and present it to the most, or the gospel's most venomous opponent? Look at how God, uh, God continues here, verse 13, or Ananias responds to the Lord, I, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints in Jerusalem. I think it's almost funny. God, <laughs> you have uh, obviously made a mistake. Let me just tell you who this guy is because you've made a mistake. This is the one who has done much evil to Christians. He hates you. He hates your uh, followers. And, and uh, I love when people try to come back and, and, and let's not be picking on Ananias. I think we'd all be in a situation he was in because we've all done this. Lord, obviously, you've made a mistake. But let's just take a moment and think about the situation Ananias finds himself in here. Saul's reputation had preceded him. Damascus is no doubt buzzing with the news that he's on his way. Saul is coming. His very name would have terrified Christians. Here Ananias questions his instruction by telling God the terrible things he's heard about Saul as if God might not have known about it. But don't blame Ananias. I really believe any of us would have been worried. This would have been akin to a, telling a Jew to go present themselves to Hitler. I mean, this was... This guy hated Christians, and Ananias is now to go to him. God's people in Damascus knew that Saul was coming into the city to wreak havoc in the church. How did they know that Saul's not setting a trap? It would be just like Saul. To, hey, I want to act like I'm a Christian. I'll get into the church, and then they will attack from the inside. Ananias had no firsthand experience of Saul's persecution, but he certainly had heard about it. And uh, in his church circle, no doubt there were Christians who had suffered already in Jerusalem or had family there. And now the terror was going to start here. All the discussions that they must have had behind closed doors when they heard Saul was coming. Should they stay? Should they hide? Should they flee? All the anxious parents worried for their children, terrified. Now Ananias is told by God, I need you to go and look Saul up. And uh, next week we'll talk about the meeting there. And, but what a command, huh? What a, what a directive to go and find or inquire about Saul of Tarsus. If there is one person that no Christian would want to shake the hand of, it would be Saul of Tarsus. We'll see what Ananias did and what an honorable mission that this would have been when you think about uh, being a part of the launching of what would be the Apostle Paul's ministry. Ananias had a part in that. and uh, so, But let's be faithful. Let's be faithful to do what God tells us to do, uh, even when it's...